Welcome back to Sunset Flip Radio, a podcast about the art and sport of professional wrestling. I am your host, Thomas Lisi. And now in the second episode of the series, we're going to be talking about tag team wrestling. Now, when I bring up tag team wrestling in today's world of the WWF, it's not as big as it was back in the golden era between the years of 85 and 92. It just doesn't have the same pizzazz. It doesn't get the amount of screen time as it should. And most of the tag teams today are kind of one-dimensional, in my opinion, and the matches are kind of lackluster, with the exception of the ladder match once in a while or a, T- or a TLC match. And now, in my opinion, tag team wrestling was as big as it should have been back of the golden era and in the attitude era where tag teams such as the Dudley boys, edge and Christian and the Hardy boys truly created great matches on such large platforms as WrestleMania. Now they created the TLC match, which in some people's opinions is the greatest tag team match of all time. In my opinion, I'm more of the, the two on two, you know, one fall to a win guy. Now, a lot of wrestlers that wrestled in tag teams between 85 and 92 did have stellar careers, Hall of Fame careers, actually, as a singles wrestler. But we're going to be talking about more about their, their pairing in the tag team division. When I mentioned Bret Hart and I mentioned Shawn Michaels and I mentioned the British Bulldog, they all first started in tag team wrestling. Shawn Michaels was part of the Rockers at Marty Jannetty. You had Bret Hart with his brother-in-law. Jim the Anvil Neidhart and the Hart Foundation, which is considered one of the greatest tag teams of all time. And you had the Dynamite Kid and the British Bulldog, part of the British Bulldogs, plural. That was their uh, wrestling tag team name. They actually won the title at WrestleMania 2 from the Dream Team, which was uh, Brutus the Barber Beefcake and Greg the Hammer Valentine. So a lot of wrestlers that are in the Hall of Fame now did get their start in tag teams. And then what Vince McMahon did is he saw something in this, in those wrestlers and created uh, programs for them as a singles wrestler to further generate and to further enhance their careers. So when I'm talking about the Hart Foundation, we're talking about arguably the greatest WWF tag team ever. And... Hands down, top five, probably top three tag teams in pro wrestling ever. They won two WWF World Tag Team titles. Now, the thing about their tag team reigns was they first won one as a heel, and they won one as a babyface. And that was something that you really never seen before, with the exception of today's uh, New Day, when they first started off as heel, and they became face, and they're eight-time champion. But back then, when they were first heels, they actually were managed by the Math of the South, Jimmy Hart. Now, the Math of the South, Jimmy Hart, was a great manager because he brought something to the table that not a lot of wrestlers had, and that was a voice at the time, especially with promos. The Math of the South was a manager for wrestlers such as Dino Bravo, such as Earthquake, and uh, the Nasty Boys, who also won uh, a WWF tag team title, but that's after the Hart Foundation. So we're talking about the Hart Foundation, and we're talking about the fact that they were a team that was over. They were over with the fans for at least five years. Now, that's a long run to be over with the fans. And when they were a tag team, they first started off in 1980. 
seven at WrestleMania two, they actually were in the uh, 20 man over the top row battle Royal. And Bret Hart was the last member who got thrown out by Andre the Giant. But they first made their debut on WWE, um, WWF, I'm sorry, uh, pay-per-views at WrestleMania 2. Now, a team with that long of a run together is very rare and unheard of as of now, with the exception of, of the New Day. But they were best friends. And they were brother-in-laws. Jim the Anvil Nightheart was married to Bret Hart's sister. And then you consider how different they were in their personality and wrestling style. You know, Jim the Anvil was more the powerhouse of the team. A brawler and was very unpredictable. And he was also a great talker. Now, some of his promos, you know, he would bring the fire and the passion at the beginning of the promo. And you would just hear uh, Bret Hart come in at the end, talk about how um, the excellence of execution... Best there is, best there was, best there ever will be. So much of Bret Hart's promos uh, were first created with the Hart Foundation, which led him to be a great singles wrestler after uh, he split from the tag team. Now, Jim the Anvil, he had amazing charisma, former football player. Guy was built like a brick shithouse. And he had very surprising speed and athleticism and agility for a guy of size. I remember... Two out of three times you would see them that they would do a a hot tag and you would see Jim the Anvil springboard over the top rope and shoulder block uh, another wrestler down. Now, that was something that, because of his size, you really never saw. He was kind of the the creator of that. And then you had Bret Hart, who was the artist of the team. He was a technical wrestler. He was a savant at being a technical wrestler. And he could really out-wrestle anybody at the time. But what was also... He was also very tough, tough as nails, I guess you can say, and he could brawl with the best of them. And because of his start in tag team wrestling, he would go on to become one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. It was a great blend of the two different styles, and they had amazing chemistry together. And they were truly two of the pioneers in the tag team division, and some matches that they had were just phenomenal with... Uh, with Demolition, they had some great matches with the Rockers, right? And one match that sticks out in my mind was the 1990 SummerSlam Tag Team Championship match where they were challengers to Demolition. Now, Demolition at the time, not many people know about Demolition, is that they had a 478-day-long streak as a tag team champion. That was unheard of at the time for for champions. Uh, the only person that had a long title reign that long was Hulk Hogan, but demolition wasn't carrying the company as much as Hulk Hogan was. So the fact that Vince McMahon gave demolition over a year and a third reign as champions really truly told you something about them. Now demolition, I was scared as hell of them. when I was a kid, you know, these two, two huge guys coming down the ring they had studded black leather masks. They leather covered from head to toe, mixture of face paint. They whip their masks off. They're sticking their tongue out at you. It was truly scary if you're five or six years old. And they were managed by Mr. Fuji. Now, not many people know that Mr. Fuji was a badass wrestler. He first started in, in Japan, a tag team champion in Japan, worked his way into the WWF and became... A manager for a couple different champions. He was a manager with the Powers of Pain. When they were tag team champions, they were 
He was manager of Demolition. Also, he was a manager of Yokozuna. And look at the run that Yokozuna had. But the thing about Demolition that separated them at the time is when they were champions, you know, after 1988, when they won their first uh, championship and holding that reign for that long, they had programs with wrestlers such as the Powers of Pain, which were Barbarian and the war and the Warlord. And they had uh, a couple programs, the Twin Towers, which were Akeem and the Big Boss Man. Now, the Big Boss Man, back in the day, he was a big boss man. He was a lot larger, a little bit slower. And him and Akeem were just this powerhouse of a tag team that really never, you know, left the ground that much, you know, with the exception of being uh, opponents with Hogan and Macho Man. When the Mega Powers broke up uh, before WrestleMania Five, they were wrestling Hogan and Macho Man at the time where they uh, handcuff Macho Man and Hogan comes in and makes a save and Hogan is getting bombarded with allegations from Macho Man about stealing Miss Elizabeth away and all that stuff. But um, what the Demolition did is they had to carry the Powers of Pain and the Twin Towers in those matches because the two different wrestling styles were on the board totally different. You know, when you're wrestling a, a bigger tag team, larger in size, it's more of less aerial attack, obviously, and more of rest holds, more of, you know, power punches and power kicks. So Demolition were workers back in the day. And a thing about Demolition is that in 1990, them and the Hart Foundation truly had, in my opinion, one of the greatest tag team matches of all time. SummerSlam 1990, two out of three falls for the titles. And at the time, Demolition were they were using the Freebird rule, which is having uh, more than two members as part of the stable. So they had Axe and uh, Crush, and they had Smash. Now Crush came into the WWF around 89-90 and he was brought in to be the third member of Demolition. Now he would have a career uh, after Demolition broke up in 92 as Kona Crush and he was a baby face and then he was actually a founding member of the Nation of Domination which many people don't know about but back in 89 when he first started he was brought in because uh, Axe, this may sound totally out of left field but Axe was a was a large um, figure in Japanese wrestling, so he would go to Japan a lot, and he would wrestle on the side. And what happened is Axe uh, suddenly got a, a allergy to shellfish. Now that hospitalized him a couple times. So what Vince McMahon had to do, because at the time Vince McMahon was the head booker, and he was also the uh, president and CEO and chairman of the whole company. So as the head booker, what Vince had to do was he had another member just in case Axe was out for a period of time. And also because they carried heat well uh, with the fans, because at the time you had the Legion of Doom who joined uh, the WWF in July of 1990, and you had the Hart Foundation as two top baby faces. So back to the SummerSlam 1990 match, uh, which is in my consideration probably one of the greatest tag team matches of all time because you had um, the excellence of execution, Bret Hart. You had uh, near falls. You had uh, two out of three falls, which is rare at the time, but I never heard a pop 
as much in tag team wrestling as I heard when the Legion of Doom come running out and they pull Axe out from under the ring because, you know, there's allegations of them cheating and, you know, just the crowd was into it. And I still see, you know, Jim the Anvil and Bret Hart doing the heart attack on uh, on Smash and win the titles. But um, if you had the time, you know, if you if you are a member of the WWE network or if you're on YouTube one day, just type in 1990 SummerSlam uh, tag team title match and you will not be disappointed. You truly won't be. Um, so besides demolition and besides the heart foundation, we're going to be talking about another tag team, which in my opinion, were very underrated and underused. And that was the brain busters. Now the brain busters, were uh, two guys, Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard, who came over from NWA in 1988, and they were paired up with Bobby the Brain Heenan, hence the name The Brain Busters. Now, these two guys were were tough as nails, honestly. Um, Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard, their swagger walking to the ring. They had the old school uh, bomber jackets and, you know, their, their aggressive style. It was second to none at the time. You didn't see that much from tag teams. Uh, but they still had a finisher, which you will never see today just because it's too dangerous. And the fact that the programming today is, you know, obviously TV, PG, but they had the spike pile driver, which is a killer finisher, a killer finisher. Um, Arn Anderson would hold the competitor and Tully Blanchard jump off and spike right into the, right into the, uh, into the mat. Now, we're talking about the 478-day reign that Demolition had as tag team champions. Not many people know. Who did they actually lose to? They lost to the Brain Busters, right? The Brain Busters ended the streak of 478 days of Demolition. So just because they ended the streak right there would tell you that, that they would have got a large push. And, you know, McMahon you know, should have put the belts on them for a long time. And he had the opportunity to, but uh, just like in episode one, where we're talking about the ultimate warrior and steroid allegations and drug use and everything, which was running rampant in the WWF at the time, it turns out that Blanchard, uh, he failed the drug test. And, uh, as a result of failing the drug test, he was, uh, fired from the company. Arn Anderson left too. And um, before uh, they got fired, they dropped the titles. Simply, they just dropped the titles. But, you know, in my opinion, I think the Brain Busters are a very underrated tag team. They had classic matches on Saturday night's main event with the Rockers going two out of three falls. Now, the Rockers are a tag team that kind of brought their own flavor and their own style to tag team wrestling. They were a large aerial attack. You had Shawn Michaels, you had Marty Jannetty. You had two guys who were the best of friends and basically brothers on screen, but at the end truly had one of the greatest breakups in tag team history. History. It was on the barbershop. I think everyone knows what I'm talking about. Brutus the Barber, Beefcake, interviews Marty Jannetty, Shawn Michaels comes out, all leather, all leather, remember black leather Cody's wearing, 
Brutus the Barbers raises their hands, and, and Shawn Michaels just super kicks the shit out of him. Knocks him right out. And uh, after that, he throws him through the glass at the barbershop, and that, besides Piper smacking Snook in the head with a coconut, probably won the most recognizable moments on a talk show in WWF history. It honestly is. You asked any true wrestling fan to this day, have you ever seen the video of Shawn Michaels throwing Marty Jannetty through a window? And, and nine out of ten times, people will say absolutely and how great that was. But the Rockers, they did win the WWF tag team title, even though no one remembers it because their tag team title win was on t uh it was taped but the wwf never actually released it now why would the wwf never release a championship that the rockers won now because the rockers won the tag team championship it was actually never um it was never proven by the WWF. What happened was they wrestled the Hart Foundation in late October 1990 in a two out of three falls match that was taped. And uh, what happened was during the match, the top rope broke by accident. So what happened was it made the match a disjointed affair that would require some cleanup before being shown on TV. And just because uh, of what happened... Uh, the WWF decided not to show the title change at all, and they would revert back to the Hart Foundation as being the champions. Now, what Shawn Michaels said, uh, I remember I read Shawn Michaels' book, and what he said was he claimed that the Hart Foundation had a politic of keeping the title. So if anyone remembers, this is another thing that obviously every wrestling fan knows about that's listening to this. It was in the dark side of the ring. It was everywhere. The Montreal screw job. So Bret Hart was a figure in locker rooms. He was very political, right? He always spoke his mind. He always was afraid of holding nothing back. Back at the time um, of the screw job, it was it was it was uh, Bret Hart, it was Undertaker, who were basically the the vocal leaders of the uh, of the locker room. So what Shawn Michaels says is that the Hart Foundation, uh, they politicked of keeping the titles, and um, you know they were giving Vince McMahon a whole ear worth, and it was also the claim that Michaels given was contradicted by the fact that the WWF actually fired Jim Neidhart, forcing the title change. But after the match, Neidhart and WWF came to an agreement, and he was brought back. So the only reason why the Rockers were going to win the title at the time was because they were going to fire Jim Neidhart. So they wanted to get the belts off of the Hart Foundation and give them to the Rockers. But with the whole catastrophe of the top rope breaking, and it was hard for them to kind of edit the match, I guess you can say, and Jim Hart, Jim Neidhart agreeing to a new contract, the Rockers never truly were recognized as champions. But because they were never officially credited with the title win, there was uh, they, they still shown footage of the match though, which really made no sense. Um, the match can be seen on YouTube. 
Uh, it's not on the WWE Network because it was never uh, uh, recognized as them winning a title. So now to talk about another tag team, which was the complete opposite of what the Rockers were inside the ring and outside the ring are the Road Warriors. Now, the Road Warriors, a.k.a. the Legion of Doom, when they wrestled for Georgia Championship Wrestling, they wrestled for the AWA, and they had a large following in Japan, they were known as the Road Warriors. But before they joined the WWF in 1990, they were in the WCW for a little time, and they still kept the same name. But the reason why they left WCW was due to uh, problems with the head of WCW, Jim Hurd. That was according to Animal of the Legion of Doom. Now, when Hawk and Animal signed with World Wrestling Federation in 1990, they uh, signed in June, which was right before the SummerSlam 1990, as I mentioned before, when they helped the Hart Foundation win the tag team titles. Vince McMahon decided to uh, retire the moniker of the Road Warriors since at the time in 1990, there were other wrestlers with the name Warrior. Obviously, from our first episode, The Ultimate Warrior, and Kerry Von Erich, who went by as the Texas Tornado, but he also had a smaller nickname, which wasn't that um, used that much on television, but he was also known as the Modern Day Warrior. So they made their debut in the middle of July in 1990, and they were just simply known as the Legion of Doom. But... Because of the alter team name, they were still introduced individually as Road Warrior Hawk and Road Warrior Animal. Now, when they first started, they immediately started a few with Demolition because they helped the Hart Foundation with the tag team titles. So as a result, Demolition got fed to Hawk and Animal. So when they first started off uh, in the WWF, what uh, McMahon did was he had to find a way to sell out the house show. So just because the Legion of Doom had so much of a following from WCW and their other previous promotions, they decided to pair uh, the Legion of Doom up with the uh, Ultimate Warrior, who at the time was the uh, WWF champion. And because Demolition had three members, Axe, Mash, and Crush, they decided to do uh, house shows for a couple months and um, that's what the WWE did mostly over the summer and leading into SummerSlam. So they did win the tag team titles at SummerSlam 1991 in the Cathedral of Madison Square Garden. They actually beat the Nasty Boys in a uh, street fight to win the tag team championships because at WrestleMania 7, the Hart Foundation, who were the, still holding the titles from beating Demolition at SummerSlam 90, they were uh, cheated out of a uh, championship. Uh, well, they were defending the championship because the mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, threw, them, uh, threw his megaphone in, smashed Bret Hart over the back, and as a result, the Nasty Boys did hold the tag team uh, championships for, for a couple months. Now... When uh, the Legion of Doom did win their tag team titles, uh, they did carry uh, for for a little while, for a couple months, and they did eventually drop the titles to Money Incorporated, which was IRS, a.k.a. Mike Rotunda, who's also uh, Bray Wyatt's father, 
and uh, the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase. And once they dropped the belts in the beginning of 1992, they left the promotion briefly. Now, they left the promotion even though they were still wrestling a little bit in Japan. But when they did return at WrestleMania 8, a couple months later, they did bring in their original manager, Paul Ellering. Now, a funny story about Paul Ellering is that before the WWF, he was their their longtime manager, and we did see more Paul Ellering in current product of wrestling when he was the manager for AOP. Now, what happened was when he was with the AOP in NXT, uh, he didn't get brought up to the main roster with AOP because they were afraid of his age at the time and his and his well-being that he wouldn't be able to uh, meet the demands of the rigoristic schedule that wrestlers in today's uh, wrestling are going through right now. So a funny story about Paul Ellering is that when when uh, they debuted or they came back at, after WrestleMania 8, um, Paul Ellering brought this ventriloquist dummy called Rocco out, and he was originally introduced as Freckles, in the front of a live crowd at a WWF taping, but the segment apparently bombed so bad that it never aired. And I'm trying to find a video of it, but it's kind of hard to find. But apparently what happened was the dummy was going to act as their inspiration and the gimmick was short-lived. So once the whole ventriloquist dummy gimmick bombed, um, what happened was Paul Ellering left the WWF, and it went back to just being Hawk and Animal as a Legion of Doom. They're wrestling 1992 SummerSlam in front of 80,000 fans at Wembley Stadium in London. They're famously known for riding their motorcycles out into the arena, and that image is a uh, long-standing image in wrestling history, especially for SummerSlam. And what happened was Hawk during that time in 1992 when he was in London, apparently went AWOL when he was there with the Berserker, which is probably one of the top 10 worst gimmicks of all time. Berserker only had a small run-in with The Undertaker back in 92, but uh, what happened was Hawk actually missed the flight back to the United States. And he... uh, he was uh, suspended by the WWF for that. And uh, Laurinaitis, a.k.a. Animal, he stuck around and finished the team's uh, contract obligations. He actually finished the rest of the Legion of Doom's contract with Crush. Now, this is when Crush became a face after Demolition broke up. Crush's gimmick was uh, a tan muscle guy from the beaches of Hawaii and he replaced Hawk on house shows in Europe in September after the uh, SummerSlam incident in August. Now, the Legion of Doom didn't really exist after Hawk got suspended, and eventually he got released, and he left in 1992 because Crush and Animal, they teamed up, and they just faced some jobber tag teams. They beat the Beverly Brothers a couple times, they beat uh, Kato, who was a former member of the Orient Express, and they beat Skinner. They were a tag team together. And um, when they returned back to North America after their, their European uh, tour, 
Animal started wrestling singles matches because there was no more Legion of Doom. And then shortly after after that, he comes back. He had to leave because he had a really bad back injury that cost a lengthy uh, hiatus from wrestling. Now, the Legion of Doom, even though that they only had two years in the WWF, technically, because Hawk had his own serious problems and uh, the way that they left, even though they didn't win the titles once, uh, was kind of premature. Um, They're mostly known for their image, in my opinion. Uh, The spiky shoulder pads, the intensity, the face paint, the, oh, what a rush. It was all... Most of their good wrestling, in my opinion, happened before the WWF. So when they were in New, when they were in Japan, when they were in the AWA, even in WCW, most of their good wrestling went towards those promotions. So we got more of the more of the latter end of their career. They were two big guys. Yeah, they had a great finisher and they did win the titles. But I feel like we were robbed as WWF fans of what their true. Um, what the true talent was now unfortunately with hawk he passed away um in the 2000s of a heart attack again every time that we're talking about the whether it's the warrior before we talked about tully blanchard now we're talking about hawk how much steroids comes into play so just like the legion of doom another tag team that debuted in the wwf and we were unfortunately robbed short of their true potential, in my opinion, were the British Bulldogs. Now, the British Bulldogs consisted of Davy Boy Smith and Dynamite Kid, and they first came into the WWF in 1984. Now, they were brought in along with uh, the Hart Foundation, Bret Hart and Jim the Anvil. They were brought into WWF after Vince McMahon bought out Stampede Wrestling, which was owned by Stu Hart up in Canada. And at the time, what Vince was doing, he was, rather than poaching superstars from each promotion, he would just come out and buy them, short and sweet, just like how he did WCW. So Vince bought out Stampede Wrestling, and at first, the Bulldogs were able to tour both WWF and All Japan, because All Japan were uh, there paying for their services also. But eventually, down the road, McMahon gained the exclusive rights to the Bulldogs. Now... While they were in the WWF, what they did was it was a smart move that they began a long-running feud with the Hearts Foundation because before, obviously, when they were in Stampede Wrestling, they had so many great matches, and they were used to each other's style and the flow and the technique of the matches. So uh, the Bulldogs also feuded with the Dream Team, Greg the Hammer Valentine, Brutus the Barber Beefcake, and at WrestleMania two. They won the tag team titles with the help of Lou Albano and actually Ozzy Osbourne in their corner. The whole uh, being from England, they brought in Ozzy because the Bulldogs are obviously British, so they wanted to get that in there. And the fans across the pond, they wanted to bring um, more of those fans into the current mainstream of wrestling. So they held the titles for about nine months, and they were feuding with the Dream Team and Nikolai Volkov at the time. And they actually lost their titles to the Hart Foundation because of a very bad back injury to Dynamite Kid. And this is just the beginning of a couple injuries in Dynamite Kid's career. Now, when they, when they dropped the titles, 
they decided at this time because uh, the WWF were playing towards more of the younger crowd that they decided to give wrestlers mascots to the ring. Example, Jake the Snake. He brought Damien the Snake. Coco Beware. Frankie the Bird. And what the, the cool part about the British Bulldogs is, is they actually brought a bulldog to the ring in Matilda. And um, they actually used Matilda in a couple different storylines. Like if you uh, at WrestleMania four, they wrestled uh, against the Islanders who were managed by Bob the Brain Heenan and they dog nat Matilda. And uh, it was a whole funny story. It was a funny match at WrestleMania four. And you see Matilda biting Bob the Brain Heenan, who's in like a dog suit. It was kind of funny. But um, unfortunately, what happens is in professional wrestling, sometimes people's egos get too big for themselves. In 1988 is a good example of when the British Bulldogs left the WWF in part due to backstage problems between the Bulldogs. And um, it was actually the Dynamite Kid and the Rougeau brothers over a prank that was uh, committed by Kurt Hennig, a.k.a. Mr. Perfect. And this is when Mr. Perfect started coming along in 1988. Now, the... British Bulldogs are known to be pranksters in the back. And I think if you ever read about Owen Hart and Bret Hart and Jim the Anvil, that, that whole family is a very laid back family. And Owen Hart was known as a big prankster before his uh, passing. But basically the short story is because the Bulldogs were known as pranksters. Uh, there was a confrontation with Jacques Rougeau. One of the Rougeau brothers and some prank happened where Jacques Rougeau knocked out Dynamite Kid's teeth with a fistful of quarters. And there was various accounts of the situation, but uh, what happened was apparently the Dynamite Kid, he first was bullying Rougeau. And he actually bullied the honky-tonk man so bad, apparently, that the honky-tonk man, when he debuted, he was brought to tears in the situation that happened in Miami. But um, no, no discipline was taken against um, against the Rougeos or against the Dynamite Kid after what happened. But uh, 1988, uh, the British Bulldogs had a uh, they quit the WWF over a dispute with management. Uh, it was over the issue of uh, complimentary plane tickets, and uh, Dynamite Kid eventually resigned from the WWF because of that, and so did Davey Boy Smith. He followed him out. Now, um, the Dynamite Kid, unfortunately, he had not just back problems, but he had significantly head trauma. Uh, his his f move was a flying headbutt off the top rope, and over a course of time, the amount of concussions, plus you mix in uh, a little bit of drugs, you know, it was a recipe for disaster. But the British Bulldog, he eventually comes back, 1990, has a good career, has a famous match with Bret Hart, 1992, Intercontinental Champion, known as one of the greatest IC t uh, matches of all time. And this year, he is going to get inducted into the WWF Hall of Fame. And of course, what the WWF did at that time was they had their jobber tag teams also. It wasn't all just uh, everyone had a title shot. You had jobber tag teams. You had the Bolsheviks. You had um, the Can-Am Connection, which was Tom Zink and Rick Martel. Even though Rick Martel would still become a champion with Strike Force with Tito, with Tito Santana. And... 
Strike Force is another good example of a tag team that, that could have gone farther. Now, Tito Santana is a Hall of Famer, but yeah, he's one in seven at WrestleMania. Not many people know that. Tito Santana is the curse of WrestleMania. Like, if you want to get over at WrestleMania, you wrestled Tito Santana back in the day. After he won his debut match at WrestleMania 1, he went one in seven after that. And one of those losses, two of those losses actually, were with uh, as a member of Strike Force. Uh, WrestleMania 4, they dropped the titles to Demolition. And uh, WrestleMania five, there's a reunion, but Rick the Model Martel turns his back on on Tito, and the Model gimmick is born. He goes on to have a couple feuds with uh, Tatanka, and his most notably feud, feud with Jake the Snake, where where a match, a blindfold match, happened at WrestleMania seven, which. I don't know about you. At the time, it was something different, but you can also tell that they were able to see through the blindfolds. It was really confusing, but, you know, at the young age, you know, I was uh, five or six years old at the time, and I thought it was something cool. Plus, I love Jake the Snake because he brought a snake to the ring, and who didn't? So, overall, tag teams were a large part of the golden era of uh, the WWF. Will it ever be... Will today's product ever be as big as it was back then? I don't think so. I just don't feel like wrestlers that are wrestling in tag teams today can carry matches as well as it did in the past. And it's sad. It really is because some of the greatest matches in the history of WWF were tag team matches during the golden era. So thank you for listening to episode two of Sons of Flip Radio. Make sure to check out our Facebook page and our Instagram at Sunset Flip Radio. You can check the page for any new episodes. And thank you for listening. Signing off.